Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Keynote, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello, everybody. It is Tuesday, December the 6th, 2022. Some things, it would seem, never change, although maybe they do in a way. Uh, over in Britain, talking to you from San Francisco, but of course I was born there and spent a lot of time there still. Uh, the new Prime Minister, Rishi Sunak, um, is dealing with striking workers, according to Politico, and the Financial Times asks whether uh, Sunak we're, is under pressure to accelerate anti-strike legislation, an old story in the UK, an old story of uh, tension, conflict between the government and unions and strikers. Uh, the new prime minister, he's only been in power a couple of months, uh, is in trouble. He, uh, he, he, he gave a quote saying, hats off to Qatar for hosting an incredible World Cup so far. Um, some people might suggest he's a little too friendly with uh, Qatar. Um, others see him as launching what one uh, pundit in The Guardian called a slow-motion bid to rescue Britain. Uh, he seems boring, but maybe that's not such a bad thing. According to the New York Times, uh, Sunak, the new prime minister, like Joe Biden in the United States, uh, might be winning because of his dullness. Not everyone, though, I think, agrees that Sunak is dull or that um, nothing changes in England, uh, or Britain, should I say. Uh, my guest today, Chitra Banerjee uh, Diva Karuni, had an interesting piece last month in the Houston Chronicle celebrating uh, Sunak's accession to being prime minister. Uh, she talks about him as a uh, a Stanford-educated man, and of course, he's most known as uh, uh, a descendant of immigrants from India by way of East Africa. Uh, Divakaruni notes in the uh, Houston Chronicle uh, op-ed that uh, Gandhi uh, would be looking down and cheering him on. Uh, Divakaruni is the author of a new book coming out next month. In the independence, a novel about um, the struggle for independence in India. Uh, and she's joining us from Houston. Chitra, welcome. Thank you. Pleasure to be here. Uh, Chitra, I want to, of course, talk most of all about your new novel. You're the author of many books, one of, uh, one of the most distinguished um, in uh, American Indian uh, novelist, fiction writers. But let's talk about Sunak first. Uh, his accession to power in the UK is quite controversial. He replaced Liv's trust, of course. You were thrilled. Why? What's so exciting about Sunak? Well, one of the reasons I was thrilled, and I'm not alone, I think a lot of people of Indian origin, both in Britain and elsewhere were excited is because he is the first prime minister of color. And we saw that as a great step forward. In fact, you know, um, British Indians were calling this their Barack Obama moment, which I thought was really fun. So I think it's, it's a big step forward just for that one reason. 
I Some also might say Chicha, you know, he's, he's, he's a very wealthy man. As you say, he was educated at Stanford. He's married into one of the, the most, um, one of the wealthiest uh, Indian families. He's wealthier apparently than the queen. I, I, I mean, so what? So he's, he's another wealthy businessman come to power. What's new about that? Well, one of the things that was different is that when he was being sworn in, he decided to use the Hindu text, the Bhagavad Gita, to be sworn in. So I think he's already making a distinction. He's proud of his heritage. I think he's, um, he's a bit of a role model for a lot of people of color in Britain and elsewhere. So I think those are all good signs. I think he's got a tough, you know, a tough row ahead. Yeah, but... I wouldn't fancy that job of uh, rescuing post-Brexit uh, England or Britain. I keep on making that Freudian error, of course. England is not England. England is Britain. Uh, let's talk then about the book uh, Independence, the new book. It's, it's, it's already out in India. It's a great acclaim in English. Uh, it will be out in the U.S. and the U.K. next month. Um, you you connect um, in your op-ed and in some of your work uh, independence with Sunak. What's the connection? Well, in the op-ed, I was the focus of the op-ed is why are Indians worldwide especially excited because he's moving to Ten Downing Street, and that's because the people who have lived there in the past, some of them, have made racist comments about India and were not positively inclined towards India. In fact, looked down on India even while gaining great riches out of India. And so this is a moment of big change, I think, that he is living where Winston Churchill once lived. And although Winston Churchill did great things for the England of that time, he also referred to Gandhi, who is a big presence in my novel, Independence, as a half-naked fakir uh, who went to meet the King of England improperly dressed. And I have to share with you Gandhi's response. He said, the King had enough clothes on for both of us. Yeah, well, Gandhi was uh, quite nimble on his feet. Uh, we've done some shows, of course, on Churchill, one with Jeffrey Wheatcroft, a, a revisionist historian of Churchill, who really stresses Churchill's own racism towards India. He was odd, Churchill. Um, I'm not sure if he's a conventional racist because uh, he had a high regard, for example, for Jews, but not for Indians. What, 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 what sense would you make of a man like Churchill, who, of course, represented the English establishment of the late 19th, early 20th century, Chitra? Well... You have to look at who he was, what he was doing, who he was representing. He was all for England. I can't blame that, but that also meant that he was quite against India becoming stronger, becoming independent. In fact, uh, some of the, uh, what shall I say, edicts he passed led to terrible suffering uh, on the Indian subcontinent, one of our great famines in the 1940s was really caused by uh, some of his orders to move food away from people who needed it. So obviously, as an Indian, I feel that very strongly, that he was biased against India. He just saw India as something that England could 
gained from, but he never looked at India as a country in its own right, a people in its own right, with their own rights. We've done some shows on British colonial history, and one in particular sticks out for me in the context of of this conversation with you, with William Dalrymple, the distinguished Anglo-Indian historian, um, has a new book out, The Anarchy, The East India Company, Corporate Violence and the Pillage of an Empire. He uses that word a lot, pillage, in the book and in my conversation, and really underlines the fact that that the British came to India to pillage the country. Are you on um, the same page as Dalrymple, uh, Chitra? Was the the British, you know, the British like to stress the fact that they weren't quite as violent or as as the Belgians or the French or the Dutch. Uh, but when it comes down to it, do you think that their crime of colonialism in South Asia was as 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 awful as unjust as what? the Belgians did in in Africa or or the French did in North Africa? Well, each situation is different, but I think the intention was similar. And really, the British cannot say they did not create violence. In my previous book, The Last Queen, which is also set in India during colonial times, and that was a century ago, that was um, set in the 1830s, 40s, and 50s. That was the time of the first Indian War of Independence, which the British quelled mercilessly. And then they did things like they would take soldiers, they'd put them into cannons, and they'd shoot them against the city wall. Now, I think that's atrocity enough. And that's just one example. You're a fiction writer. You mentioned your last book, uh, many, many award-winning books. Um, Do you see yourself and do you see this book, Independence, as a polemical piece or just a pure piece of fiction? Do you think fiction writers like yourself can escape politics or are you inevitably embroiled in it? I would like to think that this is a political book as well as a book of fiction. I think there is no antithesis between the two. Um, You know, I hope I've done both of those things, those duties. I hope I've... uh, manage them decently. Um, A book of fiction is, of course, the story of lives first. But I think I I see more and more lives are political. Which life is not affected by politics? So I think that, you know, any writer who's writing seriously has some kind of politics in their books. Uh, One review I I read, and the reviews so far have been very positive, um, compares uh, the narrative of the book to little women. I don't want you to give away too much of the plot. We want everyone, of course, to read the book, Independence, not only read it, but buy it. But, but, But did you use little women as a kind of inspiration, as a beginning to the narrative, as a, as a frame? You know, that is so funny because I had not. I had not thought of it, at least not in my conscious mind. But of course, the three sisters who are the main characters of independence and who will grow a lot through difficulties. I can see the parallels now, but it wasn't in my mind. In If anything, I was thinking back to the old folk tales of Bengal. And as you know, this book is set in Bengal. And I think this is something different about this book. Uh, There are many books on independence and partition, but they're mostly set along the northwestern border, Punjab, which was, of course, greatly affected 
during partition, but this one is set in the east in Bengal, which is the area I come from. So I was, I really had in the back of my mind the ancient folk tales with three sisters who are very different. So, um, but hey, I love little women. I'm happy to have my book compared. I'm honored to have my book compared to it. Chicha, very briefly, tell me a little bit about your background. You said you 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 grew up in the in the northeastern part of India. Um, how, uh, when did you come to the United States? And I know this is a bit of a dumb question, but I'm going to ask it anyway. I mean, do you still feel Indian? Do you think of yourself as an Indian writer, even though I think you came to grad school in the 1980s at Berkeley? You and I were there at the same time. We didn't know each other. And since then, you've mostly been teaching in Houston. You have uh, an Indian-American family, I guess, in Houston. Yeah. Yes, I think that there is some part of me that is always Indian, will always be Indian, because I spent the first 20 years of my life in that country, and that's a really formative period. I also feel American in many, many ways, because I've spent the rest of my life more, way more time here in this country. So, and it is a good place for a writer to be, to be between cultures looking over, you know, looking on both sides, kind of seeing things differently, never quite fitting in into either, having enough distance to maybe talk about the problematic things about each culture and each history. So I think that's where I place myself. At first, it was difficult not knowing how to identify myself, but I think I see myself as this kind of hybrid writer and hybrid human being now. And I think I've gained a great deal from this position as kind of an outsider in both cultures. Uh, maybe in, in Salman Rushdie's language, you're a, you're a midnight person. Of course, his great novel, 1981 novel, Midnight's Children, was about a similar period to yours. Are there similarities between these novels? Did you try to make independence different from Midnight's Children? Uh, Midnight's Children, of course, is always in the back of my mind. In fact, this semester I was teaching it in one of my classes at the University of Houston. It's a great book, but mine is very different. Uh, Rushdie uses the magical universe to make sense of what was going on in India. His book really, most of it is set long after my book, or at least sometime after my book, because his main character is born in 1947, and my main characters are coming of age at that time. And in fact, tragedies in their family are happening to their parents as we speak. So mine is a little older. It's about maybe the generation before that, the generation that really fought, that uh, sacrificed a great deal to see independence happen in their country. And even the sisters, even though they're young, they're really caught in it. And they're very aware of these sacrifices and then you know, very sadly, very tragically, where the country was together in trying to get the British out. As soon as the British are saying that, yes, we are going to leave, um, now the country is being partitioned and there's a great deal of hatred and violence. All of a sudden, it, it was like overnight. I, I, 
you know, researching it, I couldn't get over how people who were marching side by side, like two days ago, were turning on each other and killing themselves. So it's um, a little earlier than Rushdie, but I think I share his his feeling that this is an amazing and complex subcontinent, India and Indian yeah, history. And it's, it's, it's as amazing now as, as it ever was, but back in the middle of the, the 20th century, of course, it was particularly complicated by the issue of religion and nationalism. Um, not everyone watching this Chitra will be as familiar, certainly as you, with the history of the partition. Very briefly, tell us in your mind what happened in the late 1940s. Okay, so... We're really talking about 1945, 1946. Uh, the British have, you know, this is after World War II and the British have had to say, yes, we are leaving India. There's been a lot of pushback on them. Uh, some of it from uh, the United States, I'm happy to say. You know, United States uh, pushed them. They said, you have to get out of India now. And I think that did have an effect. And of course, you know, in India, all the political parties had come together and they're like, we need independence. We need you out of here. So they're leaving, but then uh, strange things happen. They're talking to the Indian leaders, and uh, there are many leaders, but I'll mention two, Nehru and Zinna. And Zinna is uh, Muslim, Nehru is Hindu. And Zinna says, after some chats with the British, I would like the Muslims to have their own country. And a lot of people were against this. Was that reasonable, do you think, to ask? It's a complicated question. I think many Muslims would feel it was. But on the other hand, Indians, you know, Hindus and Muslims had lived together just fine. Are you Hindu? Are you from a Hindu family? Yes, I'm from a Hindu family. So I felt it's like it was a bit of balkanization, right? you cut India into three pieces, India is not as strong anymore. Right, but um, would it be fair to say, we're looking at a couple of maps um, of, of the India in ethnic and religious terms in the, uh, in the 1940s, would it be fair to say that the majority of both Muslims and Hindus preferred separation or did they want to stick together? It's a complicated issue, I know. It's complicated. A lot of people, I think the Hindus were more for staying together because, you know, they weren't, yeah, I think the Hindus were more for it. They, they were the Serbs. They were the most powerful, so it made more sense for them to stay together. Right. They were the larger in number, so they didn't feel, you know, threatened by the thought of staying together. They were like, we've been together for a long time. But they had sorry to jump in, Chitra. You said they'd been together. I mean, they lived on the same subcontinent. But was there in the villages uh, and in the cities, was there a lot of intermingling? Did people think of themselves first and foremost as Muslims or Hindus, or did they think of themselves in linguistic terms or in geographical terms? They thought of themselves in linguistic terms, geographical terms. And as we move into the 1930s and 40s with the freedom struggle going on, they thought of themselves as Indians trying to get out from under the British yoke. So that was very much a part of uh, their identity. So it was surprising to 
a lot of leaders that suddenly there was this movement, suddenly there was this call for direct action day in 1946, which caused immense problems, especially in Kolkata, it caused great killings. And nobody had expected that. Nobody had expected this kind of fear um, and this kind of fear mongering. So it came as a huge shock, I think, to everyone, certainly Nehru and his cabinet, but also to Zinna. I don't think he actually said very much about it, but I would think that it was a huge shock to him that once it was announced that India would be partitioned on both those sides, as you showed in your map, uh, Muslims began to move to Pakistan. And I'm saying move, but it was a huge rush. Hindus were trying to come back. And from both of those sides, you see the Northwest and the East. So there was a lot of movement and a lot of loss of lives, property, a lot of violence. Yeah, ter uh, terrible. Women were raped. You know, it was just... Communal was violence. Just I mean, uh, how many people were killed in this period? When I did my research, it's almost a million people. And it how much responsibility do you think... This is not a glorious moment in, in English history or British history. How much responsibility for that communal violence lies with the British? Do they just clear out without responsibility or is, is the responsibility more complicated than that? It, it is complicated, but the British didn't make things better. Um, you know, they had the lines of partition drawn rather cavalierly. <laughs> uh, the person who uh, created these borders, had never been in India. He was given like 10 days to do this. He just had no idea of what he was doing. And uh, I think, though, even people of India at that time did not realize what this would cause. But the British did not stay around to help with any of the problems that happened. They were out of there. You know, they were gone. So Very convenient. Not the first <laughs> or the last time that's happened. So let's get to the novel. Um, Three Sisters, Their Deep Bond and the Struggle for India's Freedom. Um it's all based in a, in a village in Bengal. Tell me about these three sisters. Well, as you said, the three sisters, the oldest is Deepa, the middle sister is Jamini, the youngest sister is Priya. And I think what I wanted to um, bring out through their lives is that independence has at least two meanings. And one is the public independence of the nation. But in order for that to really be true independence, People have to get a sense of independence in their own lives. They have to have agency. And especially for women at that time, that was difficult. So it is also the story of these three women learning what independence means, learning uh, through what they're looking at, but also in their own lives, because there, there's going to be tragedies where they will have to stand up for themselves, learning the price of independence. They're learning that it has a great price, and yet it is extremely important. You, and you I think quote, that's what I India found is. a quote of yours um, uh, in terms of talking about the book that the country could not become independent till everyone came together. But that never happened, did it, Chitra? I mean, th that's the problem, not just with the India of the 1940s or India and Pakistan, but even India today, the idea of people coming together offers a great deal of promise, but it, it's never really borne out in reality, is it? Well, I would say that 
at the height of the independence movement, it was the most one could ever imagine in that nation, which is so pluralistic, right? Because Hindus and Muslims marched together. They went to prison together. They stood up against the British together. So I think that was a time, I remember my grandfather would tell me stories and my grandfather had many friends who were Muslim. And so in that generation, there was a sense of friendship between Hindus and Muslims because they shared an ideology. They shared the ideology of the importance of independence and, and the fact that independence was worth sacrificing for. And I think when a nation has that kind of outer enemy, the nation does come together to fight the outside enemy. But as soon as the enemy was gone, it was like things started falling apart. And the politicians had a lot to do with it. I mean, I, I don't want to blame one person, but, you know, Zinna was so, he was so determined that- And this was the Pakistani leader. He's the Pakistani leader. He was so determined that he wanted a country that he could lead, that he really did a lot to bring about this partition. You mentioned, uh, you mentioned Nehru earlier, and you talked about Gandhi looking down and being proud of uh, Sunak. Uh, what about Nehru's responsibility? Yeah, and Nehru was also responsible. I think he did not think at all that, you know, he just did not see this happening, the kind of, the kind of bloodshed, the kind of uh, violence. He just did not see it. He was very distressed. But you talked about Gandhi. Gandhi was the most distressed of all because Gandhi had always wanted a united India. In fact, there was a point where Gandhi said to Zinna, you can be the new prime minister. Uh, let's just keep India together. It's better for India. It will be a stronger country. It will be a richer country. You know, all those true things. They're all true things. But that is when then um, factions began to develop within the Indian political system where people were like, no, we don't want Zinna to be the leader of this country. We've done a number of shows on modern India, one with the science fiction writer Samit Vasu on sort of surveillance in digital India. Um, to what extent is the India of Modi, which some people see as a kind of Hindu fundamentalism, certainly intolerant of, of, of Islam, uh, how much of that is a consequence of the failure of the 1940s and of the violence that took place uh, uh, that you describe in part in your book, Independence? Well, things are complicated, right? I think there are certainly connections, but that was 75 years ago. And in between, India has had other political parties come to power that have been more inclusive, inclusive of different uh, minorities, different people, different ethnicities, different religions. So I think... Um, what we are seeing in India today with a push for a Hindu India is really recent. I, I would say it's recent. And that was one of the reasons I wanted to write this book. And I wanted it to come out in our 75th year of independence. That was kind of personally important to me. But I wanted to show that at that time, 
Hindus and Muslims, they did relate well to each other. They helped each other. They were friends. They, you know, they saved each other in a lot of the, when the, a lot of the violence was going on. There are many horror stories, but there are also many beautiful stories of people coming and saving each other. And in fact, some of the major relationships in this novel will be between Hindus and Muslims. So it is something that's happening in India today. And I think it's part of a trend that we're seeing in many countries where, um, you know, there's a sense of we are separate. I think we're seeing it in the U.S. now between our major political parties. We are separate. We cannot come together. It's got to be my way or nothing. Uh, I think it's a very dangerous trend. So my hope is that when we are reading something like independence, both here in this country, as well as in India, people will remember those old ideals with which countries were formed, with which you know governments were born, and go back to realizing the value of having a multicultural, multi-ethnic, and tolerant society. I think that's so important that you know we need to connect with each other listen to each other, kind of be in dialogue with each other instead of saying, you know, I want nothing to do with you. In fact, I would rather you just weren't here. Teacher, you mentioned earlier the book's already been published in India. Uh, you're probably going to do a, a tour. Do you expect much criticism of the book in your, in your optimism that people of different religious traditions can work together. There, there may be some Indians who, who might be angered by this book. Yeah. <laughs> yes. It's, that's always an issue. I think my the last few books that I've written have all dealt with topics that are, you know, problematic if you're coming from... Right, the last queen writing. as well, right. Yes, if you're coming from a very right-wing um, point of view, because my books are always talking about India being a multicultural country, gaining its strength from people of different backgrounds, and what happens when we don't have tolerance. You know, we destroy ourselves. And I'm not making this up. These are historic. This is historic evidence. I've always also become known as someone who really pushes for women's rights. Uh, there are people who don't like that too. So yes, I'm always worried when a new book comes out and I'm always worried when I have to go and do public events. But I mean, what are you to do? How I don't know how to be a writer any other way. I don't think it would be worth being. So I'm just going to cross my fingers and say a prayer and jump into it. But fortunately, I think a lot of people you know, they can't disagree with what I'm showing in independence because that was history. That was history that Hindus and Muslims, yes, they fought, yes, they killed each other, but they also deeply, deeply helped each other, appreciated each other. Culturally, they learned from each other. I'm not making any of this up. This is really true. And I'm just saying, look at how it was. Look how valuable it was. Just look and you make your decision. Um, there's a postscript uh, at the very end. It's very short. And if you don't mind, I want to read it because 
this really relates to uh, what we are talking about. Um, this book, it says, here is a river, here is a wind rising, here is a village, here is the year. The river is time, the wind is memory, it can carry flowers, it can carry flames. The village is the world and you are at its center. The year is now, what will you do with it? What will you do? So I'm not telling people what to think, I'm just telling them to think about what they will do. You're, you're, you live in Houston, so you're very familiar with American history as well. And it's as complex, as problematic and violent in some ways as Indian and South Asian history. Are there parallels? You suggested it earlier between the divisions in America and contemporary America and the divisions in contemporary South Asia and Modi's India and Pakistan. Yes, I think there are. I think, you know, if you look at um, the bitter division now between Democrats and Republicans in this country, the way uh, we just can't even seem to talk with each other, we can't even seem to come to an understanding or an agreement about what is good for this country. Um, each, each party and, you know, I'm clearly democratic, but... Each party, I see the problems with the Democrats as well as the Republicans. They are unwilling to dialogue. They're unwilling to compromise. They're unwilling to put their, what shall I say, their values, but more than values, you know, their stubbornness aside to say, what is good for this country? And it's the same thing happening in India. And, you know, it makes me sad because in both of our these countries, a great country is being kind of torn apart by this. And is that the value, do you think, as a fiction writer that you can bring, bringing people together? Do you think this is a book that could bring people, help bring people together in Bengal, Muslims and Hindus? That is a, that would be like a great hope. That would be like my top hope. But at least I want people to think about it. A lot of times, when we give into prejudices or we accept prejudices, we haven't really thought through the issue. We just, you know, we read something, we hear something, boom, we come up with an opinion. But I feel it's very important for us to really think about things and to think about them from both sides. What this is what those people are saying. Well, why are they saying that? And this is what these people are saying. And why are they saying that? And objectively kind of evaluate what is, a, what is a value in both of these statements? Because, you know, it, it would be incorrect and it would be facile to say that one party or one group is completely right and the other one is completely wrong. We want to take from each one what is best in their thinking. And so I hope that when one reads this in a fictional book and sees it, working in the lives of characters, which hopefully, if the characters are well drawn, you as reader care for them, and you're sympathetic to them, and you're sympathetic to their way of thinking as well as their mistakes, then some things begin to change within us. That's my great hope. And that's why I've dedicated my life to being a writer, that books do change people. They've changed me. So, you know, I believe that books can change people. Whether this book will change people, I can only hope. 
books can change people. Um, one of the, the ways in which sectarians criticize one another is talk about family values. Your book is about family values, three sisters. And one of the things that struck me is your pinned tweet on Twitter uh, deals in a, in, a, in a quite comic way with a family of writers. Do you see yourself in, in an odd way as a writer of family values? Is that the thing that we all have in common? An ability to fall back on family values and recognize that we all share that, whether we're Hindu, Muslim, conservative, Republican, liberal, left-wing, right-wing, male, female? I certainly think that family is a huge and powerful force. Um, it operates differently in different people's lives. We have biological families, we have chosen families, we have families of all kinds. But I do believe that coming together of the clan is important. Now, I don't always believe in traditional family values, including traditional Indian family values. In fact, the sisters in uh, independence are going to break a lot of taboos. They're going to upset a lot of people because of what they do. But ultimately, family is important to them. Their sisterhood is going to be important to them. So I don't think of family values as something that's like um, carved in stone. In fact, I feel that for family values to be effective, we have to keep working with them. We have to keep uh, you know, allowing them to transform themselves and to transform us as society is changing. But I think a certain loyalty towards family is important. And where we see that failing, where we see um, families like truly broken and individuals and, you know, being in teaching, I see a lot of young people. And I do see people whose family structures have broken down. And uh, what I feel is sad is when there's problems, they don't know where to turn. So I think that is something that family does. You know, um, I think Robert Frost said, what's great about family, when you really need them, they have to take you in. And I think that gives people a lot of strength.